The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And it's also good as we reflect back on the formal sitting practice of metta, loving-kindness, about those four parts. I find it really helpful just to keep in mind that, you know, I have to develop the skill when I'm in a more ordinary state of consciousness, which means, you know, I get irritated and, you know, see things in terms of conflict and power and, you know, just in the normal push and pull of life. We need to be able to arouse, like, remember, oh, this mind, this heart, me, you know, I can actually show up in the world. I can actually be relating with kindness, not in a contrived way, but in a just authentic, natural way. I may not know how to do it right now, but I can have confidence that it's a possibility, that there aren't really moments where it's not possible. There may be moments where it's harder to remember, for sure, right? And then once it's aroused, then there's a skill of noticing the very fundamental characteristic of love, which is that upwelling, generous, inclusive, you know, so whatever word you use, love, you know, spiritual love, it has a flavor to it, a recognizable flavor. And the important thing is recognizing that characteristic, that fundamental characteristic of love, let's just call it the capacity to include, right? Or the generousness of it. Recognizing that characteristic is what strengthens it, it's what helps us keep it in mind. We're recognizing the essential characteristic of love is how we get close to it and how the momentum builds. And then we notice it's it can go everywhere. Its nature is to go everywhere. Not leaving, not throwing anybody out of our heart or throwing anything out of our heart. Not creating boundaries. That's That's how we experience the when there's some momentum, some confidence. So that's the third skill, is to recognize that, let's call it a full blooming, full confidence of love, that it really, whatever we bring to mind, wherever the attention goes, that way of relating with kindness is right there. It wasn't dependent on looking at my cat, the kindness. Because then when I look at the lamp, something even, you know, inanimate object, it's like, there's not aversion. You know, there's kindness there too. A generous quality there too. And then on and on like that. And then the last, as I've been talking about, is it's a realization like, I don't have to imagine that I'm doing the love. That's actually extra, this idea that there's a me who's radiating the love. There can be this radiance of love without that kind of clunky sense of a me doing it. Me who's really doing it well or the me who's not doing it as well as I did last week or, you know, all of that can fall away. And so it's there's something about trusting and relaxing and I like the word abiding. But it's really about dropping the doing, the sense of a doer doing it. 
And it's an experiment. We have to find our own way, right? You know, I can say these words or the tradition, you know, can say these words, but we've got to experiment. We've got to kind of get in the nitty gritty of our own mind, keeping metta in mind, how to arouse it, how to sense that generous quality of it, how to really see how that generosity leads to a sense of boundlessness. It goes everywhere. Nothing is untouched and how we can deeply trust it enough to drop the sense of, I've got to do something. And part of what we do is we catch ourselves neurotically like doing phrases when they're not needed because it's it's already quite alive, but we're still in the habit of being the doer doing something. And then we realize, oh, I, that can be relaxed. The sense of me being the practitioner doing the loving kindness practice. So I'd love to hear from some folks, your own reflections, your own learnings, and of course, any questions that come up. I have more I can say, of course, but it's often really good to let other people share from their practice. And, you know, it's only 17 of us, so I think it's fine for people to simply unmute yourselves, just be on the lookout for people who are unmuting themselves about the same time and act of kindness, let the other person go first. <laughs> or maybe the act of kindness is you being the person who goes first. Who knows? Nice to say your name. You can also say your pronouns if you want. What comes to mind? Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Yeah, yeah, Jenny. I I can go ahead because I experiencing something or aware of something um, that feels really new and very powerful, which is this process happens and um, it just happens. (laughs) And it's not a doing thing. I mean, of course, you got to show up and you got to participate. But the sense when you were talking about the um, experience of the love, radiant love, um, I absolutely felt that. And it wasn't anything to do with, you know, like it it was just relaxing, like you said. And um, mindfulness seems similar to me in that same way. And I think that's... uh, I mean, this is brand new for me. This is a brand new realization. And so it just feels really powerful right now to me because uh, understanding the mindfulness in my life and the impact it has on my life uh, is uh, really significant. And yeah, that piece about it just arises. Yeah. Yeah, that is a powerful insight. That's it. Yeah, that is a powerful insight, Jenny, obviously, and uh, and really life-changing. I mean, not to be too dramatic about it, but that basically, because so much of the practice, when we have the force of our conditioned personality that's operating, which is like almost all the time, and then we have a newer intention like, oh, there's another possibility than just my habit energies triggering more of my habit energies, none of which are very wise or kind. 
And then we have that intention, that wholesome intention, I can really be present and I can really meet experience in a kind way. And uh, it really feels appropriately like we're a little bit in conflict with the force of my habits to be irritable, to be controlling, to be defensive. And now there's this new intention. So there is a place in practice where we, that requires this very assertive, like, um, no, I, it's almost like it said in the tradition, you know, we're doing battle with Mara, which is that Pali word for the personification of ignorance and, and uh, yeah, things that lead to endless samsara, the cycling of suffering. And uh, we construct a self, I mean, just to talk about it in a gross way, to confront the unhelpful habits of mind. But as our practice, as it matures, as we have more understanding, there's times in our practice where that assertive, kind of self-centered, I don't want to live this way anymore, I'm going to cultivate kindness, I'm going to cultivate mindfulness, it's just too gross of an instrument. You know, we need a more subtle way to show up in our practice. And it gravitates in the direction of more trust, less me doing my practice, and more, like you were suggesting, Jenny, trusting what has arisen. And it's such an interesting place in practice where we notice there's a lot of love naturally there, present, and how the mind is relating to the present moment. And it would be so neurotic for me to start doing phrases at that point, you know, loving kindness phrases. Not that it would be, you know, the worst thing in the world, but it's just not needed. The love is already there, generous, big, boundless, happening on its own. So our practice at that point is for it to be recognized and to realize over and over, I can just abide. I can trust the momentum. But that's like a new skill. And I think that's what I heard you saying, Jenny, is like the surprise about like, oh yeah, I can, I can learn this too. Because the, the uh, thing that confuses us there is we think there's a sense of a me who thinks I have to be doing something. Well, do I? And you have to experiment. Like it's, it feels like stepping off a cliff. Like, can I just let this love be love? Or will I lose it? You have to check it out. It might, it might blossom in ways, become even more stable and expansive simply by getting out of the way. And, and you're keeping, we're keeping it in mind, but the sense of me doing something actually ends up being a barrier. So when we drop that, <clears throat> there's a more profound intimacy or integration, or merging, or whatever you want to call it, with the love. Yeah, any other thoughts, Jenny? No, thank you. Yeah, thanks for getting us started with the conversation. Who'd like to go next? Hey, Barbara. I'm Barbara. Um, you know, the last couple of days, I have been practicing this phrase, the unknowingness of being. 
And there's something that, you know, those words kind of strike me of as not trying not to pin something down with my mind, figure it out, know it, and just allow myself to be unknowing. And of course, I thought I was going to fall apart. (laughs) (laughs) But lo and behold, I didn't fall apart. In fact, I feel freer. I could feel myself just, you talked about the welling up. It's like I could feel my heart welling up as I let go of those constraints that I've been putting upon myself to be smart and figure it out. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And there's a lot of uh, relationship between that, those more um, profound states of wisdom, which I think is... The, what you're talking about, Barbara, that that realization, like as we're present in a in a somewhat refined state of mind, and we realize in that state, I don't have to define that wholesome state of mind. However beautiful, however wise, however inclusive, however stable, however deep it is. It can just be what it is. And that's kind of how I understand your your words, your phrase, the unknowingness of being. And you see what a, it's a real risky thing leaving behind the sense of the doer, the sense of the practitioner, the sense of the being, the one who loves. But what we learn in our Dharma practice is to go in the direction of what's wholesome, no matter the cost. Mm -hmm. You know, the flavor of freedom, the flavor of peace, the flavor of love, we learn to trust it and to be loyal to it and to follow it to the nth degree, even if we lose everything in the process. Because we only lose what's not real or extra or whatever, you know, however you want to say it. But that doesn't mean we're not clinging to that stuff. So it can feel a little scary sometimes to follow, like, and this is why it's really nice to work with things like metta, loving kindness, because it's so trustworthy that when we start to feel it, it's relatively easy for us to trust it unconditionally and to experiment with dropping the sense of me doing it or me owning the love, or having the love, right? Because at some point, the heart or wisdom starts to intuit that that's extra and in the way a little bit, or a lot. So because we're interested in the full blooming, we're willing to experiment. Same with wisdom, like what you're talking about. You know, that space of knowing, we begin to realize how empty it can be empty of somebody who knows, empty of somebody who understands in that kind of cognitive sense. Yeah, appreciate that. Barbara, any other thoughts? No, thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us. Who'd like to go next? And it's not just what you learned tonight in your practice, but just generally as you're 
interest in metta, loving kindness, and all of its different flavors? How is that showing up in your life, in your practice? I don't know if it's uh, Sharon Salzberg who said this, but I like this phrase. I have this sense, um, you know, just because tonight I thought just looking at the relationship between wisdom and metta, how they intersect and interact and support each other. And she, you know, I often think about wisdom and awareness as being the universal solvent. And I found, I think it's Sharon Salzberg's wonderful book called Loving Kindness, um, she talks about how it melts one's psychic pollutants as well as others, right? And she has another phrase that I like, the mythologies of isolation and how metta, loving kindness, that basic goodness or friendliness, it really challenges those mythologies of isolation that are so compelling. You know, the, all the little and big versions of oh, poor me, or, oh, poor you, you know, when we're kind of pitying somebody else. And it, it, it just is different ways. We don't realize it often, of course, of isolating and separating. And then, of course, we're affected by that construction of separation, right? There's a famous uh, teaching from, I don't know if people know Nisargadatta. He was a well-known teacher in India in the 60s, maybe into the early 70s even. And I think he was just like, a, he had a little cigarette booth in Bombay, you know, so not somebody with any kind of education or wealth. But he became evidently, in his book you can get, it's uh, I Am That. Uh, it's, I think it's a, worth reading. And of course, he's not a Buddhist. He's uh, sort of in the yogic mystical tradition, but obviously there's a lot of overlap in these Eastern traditions. Um, but there's a very often repeated quote of his you'll hear, and this was also in Sharon's book, Loving Kindness, but you've heard it from other people. And so Nisargadatta says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Yeah, and so emptiness is like that, cultivating that space of stable, continuous, present moment awareness that really sees things in their simplicity. Oh, this is being known. And recognizes that it's empty of everything else. It's just this experience being known. It's painful heart being known, anxiety being known, happiness being known, love being known, right? So to kind of a deconstructing, stripping away, things are just the immediacy of what they are, something being known. That's the wisdom piece. But love has this way of, of opening and including and feeling, seeing the whole picture right, the wholeness, where wisdom sees the emptiness. And between the two, 
our lives flow. And that's a little bit like that phrase uh, that I taught you from Michelle McDonald. You know, may we be happy and peaceful. That's a very inclusive, you know, like that's a wish that can include everyone, everything. But may we know that things are just what they are, just something being known and empty of everything else. It's just this experience being felt, being known. It's nice to begin to recognize that connection, you know, that how they support each other, wisdom and love. And I'll share one more thing and then open it up again for your reflections. But a while back, probably 15, 20 years ago, Jack Kornfield was interviewed about just his, the course of his practice unfolding over the many decades he had been practicing. Most of you probably know Jack Kornfield. He's one of the senior teachers in our Western Insight Meditation Movement and has written a number of wonderful books. But in this interview, you know, he, he said, you know, just answering that question about like how his practice has unfolded, he says, uh, I have come to a very different understanding of the path that it's not so much about perfecting ourselves as it is about perfecting our love. Practice has become less of a duty and much more an invitation to love, to vastness, and to mystery. And I really like that. Um, I think that's kind of this integration that I've been talking about. and And it's really about how we relate. You know, it's not an experience, a momentary experience of love, and it's not a momentary experience of emptiness. But it's really about this way of relating. And I think it's really useful to call it love, to kind of reform that word love, you know, that has kind of gotten corrupted in how the, all the ways we use love in just superficial ways. But to be relating with kindness, to be relating in that good way, that generous way, that loving way. And uh, we can only do that when we understand how empty everything is. Because if we're not feeling and sensing how empty everything is, then we're still under the conditioning, the kind of reptilian conditioning around about wanting this body to survive and me against you, and or, you know, my tribe against your tribe. So it's not always specific to this body and this life. It can include a wider circle, but still um, sort of at war with the unpredictability and un uncertainty of conditions, you know, and what comes our way and competing forces that are all dancing together. And so just that when we think about the functional way to navigate our lives, to show up, to be relating, whether we're relating to our own emotions or circumstances in our lives or the wider world, and just to see how we need to see the emptiness because that allows us to be really close, to be intimate with love. So without emptiness, we're not really going to meet things as they are. But without meeting things really as they are, you know, we're not really loving, right? So we, they both allow for each other. 
two wings, as we say in the Buddhist tradition. Other thoughts that come to mind or questions that seem useful or helpful to bring out? Yeah. I have, I have a, well, I guess it's a question. I've been contemplating relationships and realizing as I take a look back that, you know, many people in relationships want the other person to listen to all this stress and the poor me and the conflict and all of that. And it's like, I'm, I'm contemplating how do I be in my heart with people who seem to want attention for these separations and and hold them in compassion and at the same time not fall into enabling the poor me stuff. I don't know that I said that very well, but Yeah, no. I, yeah. I think you were clear, Barbara. And it's really a good question. And and even as we're reflecting, other people might have some thoughts about Barbara's situation that, you know, we all know in our own way. I'll, I'll say a few words, but let's contemplate it, like bring to mind those people in your lives, because there's probably many, because we're all in that place at times where we're just venting in a self-centered way. And really what we want, like Barbara suggests from the other person, is for them to be codependent with our identifications and our self-centered concocting of the story of my life, right? We want them to confirm it. And, uh, and you know, one of the things that love does, it has that big, it can have that big view, that inclusive big view. So we, we're also, even though we're listening to them and we're sensing that they're hurting and because they're hurting and not wanting to feel that they're hurting, they're using the story, the sort of dualistic story of me against this person who's causing me problems or whatever, you know, to isolate themselves from their pain. But it doesn't really work. We sort of, and wisdom knows, wisdom and love knows, like this person venting isn't really helping. And we can kind of hold like, oh, this is what suffering looks like. And I'm not afraid of your ignorance and I'm not afraid of you acting out. And I'm not afraid of the uncertainty of whether I should say something or not say something. Is this an is this the situation where I should step in and be the spiritual teacher to this friend of mine? Or is this the time where I just hold it energetically like, ah, I totally get this narrow view that I sense that you're coming out of. I totally get how that happens. Been there, done that. I totally get it, it's not productive. And I have a lot of compassion and tenderness for you. And I even can include the person you're talking about. Whoever that person is, you know, they're just acting out causes and conditions. And we're all in a sense a victim of what's in motion. And the only thing that helps is this perspective that we're trying to model and inhabit with them. This even goes to the any extreme situation like we're with someone who's dying. right? We're, we try to show up being the awareness and the love that would be useful for that person. 
without telling them about it necessarily, right? Often, almost always, that's not helpful. Every once in a long while when the person is clearly asking, maybe we have that relationship where we're sort of as a friend or as a teacher or whatever, therapist, we're in that role of offering some perspective that maybe helps them see what they're not seeing. But that's a you know relatively rare situation. So, but that doesn't mean we can't be inhabiting. And it's like really useful for us and energetically, it might be really useful for them. Even if they don't understand it, it may take many, many different people modeling before there's that transmission, even without anybody ever telling them what they're doing. And uh, it's basically, you know, learning to inhabit non-fear, non-aversion, non-control, non-separation. Like not separating them out. Oh, they're the ignorant one, and I'm over here as the wise one. Because we see them acting out, but we see ourselves in that. Oh yeah, I know that. And I'm not afraid of that in you, and I'm also practicing not being afraid of that in me, when that gets triggered in me. Because a lot of the time when we want to tell somebody how to be better, it's because we're still afraid of that pattern in ourselves, right? So we act out our own fear of being that, you know, capable of that sort of unskillfulness by immediately wanting to fix them. <laughs> Tell them what's what. Thanks, yeah. that was helpful. And of course, there are times when we don't really have the time or the energy or the stability to be that kind of friend. And then depending on the situation, we need to excuse ourselves, right? Because we might start, like you suggested, Barbara, getting sucked in. And if we don't take care of ourselves, we're not gonna be helping ourselves and we're not gonna be helping the other person. So there are times when strategically we have to go to the bathroom or we have to leave the room, go home, or if the, Friendship is such, we might be able to tell them, you know, I can't really be here with you now and hearing this. It just, I just don't feel comfortable. And they can ask, well, what's going on? And you can assess if this is the right time to say more. But for some of our relationships, they, there really already is this established invitation to be honest with each other. And those are great relationships. But it's not always appropriate to speak the truth in the full, fullest sense because it's not the right time. We don't, we're not capable of the right attitude to say what needs to maybe needs to be said at some point. But we can uh, aspire to be ready that when the conditions are right, I'll be willing to say this to this person. But they may never be right, but if they ever are right, and I really do feel invited or really does feel appropriate, may I not be afraid to do my best to say what needs to be said. Any last thoughts before we wrap things up? Other learnings or questions that have emerged?
Really nice to be with everyone. Shall we sing our new song together once through? <laughs> so the first one is with the pronoun I, then the pronoun you, and then the pronoun we. And of course, we'll all be muted. I'll, I'll unmute. I mean, I, I'll be unmuted, but I, I encourage you to sing it out loud and energetically we'll sense that we're singing together. And that way it will make an imprint. Because sometimes, you know, when... You know, when we're caught up in habit energies that are not less than skillful, it's nice to be able to do a chant out loud or do a song like this out loud because it, it takes the whole mind and so the mind has to drop its unskillful obsession, whatever it might be. So it's always good to have in the back pocket some quotes, some chants, some songs that are fundamentally wholesome that you do, you know, if it's in a social situation where it's not okay to be doing it out loud, you could just do it silently in your mind, of course. But when you need that, you know, you're home alone or whatever, do it out loud. It really forces the mind to change the channel when you do it something out loud. It's any spiritual tradition on this planet, humans have disco discovered this truth. That's why people memorize stuff. So they can bring it to mind and change the channel when needed. <laughs> so let's learn this one. May I be happy and peaceful, and may I know things are just as they are. May you be happy and peaceful, and may you know things are just as they are. May we be happy and peaceful, and may we know Things are just as they are. Thanks for showing up, everyone. Nice to be with everybody. Feel free to unmute yourself if you want to say good night before we... Good night, everybody. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.